All right, Pat, yet another one, another midpoint. We are halfway through season three already. Man, just like this show, time is flying, ultimately. This is, I'm not going to lie, I was very much looking forward to this episode. This is probably one of my favorite episodes of the entire show. It's widely hailed as being one of the best episodes of the show. Season three, episode five, our overall 25th episode, Kissed by Fire. Pat, any, any opening remarks before we get started? Yeah, I think the talking TV fam is going to agree with me that there's a, a lot of kisses, not just by oh, fire. Oh yes, oh yes. There's like some kisses by fire and a few uh, kisses by kisses of death, if you will, in this in, in more ways than one. All of that and more on tonight's episode of Talking Thrones. You know, Pat, I think it's really fascinating that we're recording this episode on the same weekend that Dune came out, because George R.R. R. Martin is one of many people who has stated that he was inspired by the works of Frank Herbert. And now after having watched the movie and seeing just kind of how much they're trying to emulate Game of Thrones just from every conceivable level, it's once again another one of those weird things that happens throughout the history of pop culture where it comes full circle, right? Where Herbert inspires uh, Martin. Martin, Benioff and Weiss obviously adapt from Martin, and now Denny Villeneuve is pulling directly from what Benioff and Weiss did as far as trying to capture some of the epic nature, uh, epic grand scale look and apply it to, you know, the, you know, the more creative, you know, sci-fi futuristic uh, elements. You know, have you got a chance to watch Dune yet? Hey, uh, yeah, I did, Dom. It, it's one of those things where it's definitely more clear the storyline uh, than the previous movie uh, you know directed by David Lynch obviously yeah but we all <laughs> you know? we all know the problems surrounding that David Lynch podcast but again this is not a dune podcast if you guys want to know our thoughts on dune you can check in tomorrow morning tomorrow night I should say when Chris and I put up our episode where we reviewed dune I think I still think it was a fascinating and worthwhile watch even though I did have problems with how it ended up shaping up we're not here to talk about that this is talking Thrones. Yeah. God damn it we're here to I'm talk curious about. what your thoughts will be on the fact that it's a, a two-parter that it's a, but I, yeah, I, I oh, guess yeah. I'll have Oh, oh, you mean that it's only half a movie? Yeah, don't yeah, worry. Yeah, I'll, I'll have to tune in tomorrow, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Will this be the first episode that you tuned in for a while that you actually watch of our podcast? <laughs> uh, <laughs> gotcha. Dom, don't call me, don't call gotcha. me out on that. Oh, yeah, you yeah know, exactly. I've checked out a couple of them, you know, There's but uh, definitely. J- just remember the one, uh, I think Spiral, the one yeah. that I was on. Oh, yeah, definitely. Really, yeah, that one. Um, and then probably the Snyder Cut before that one. Yeah, exactly. So uh, there's been a couple of uh, that I was on that uh, uh, the spiral one definitely oh, man, that, that was, uh, that was so basically traumatized fun. me. That was so much fun. That episode, though, let's be real here. That episode was amazing. <laughs> that episode was amazing. Did we talk for like ten minutes about Sam Jackson and like whether he was like ordering from the right and how much hell he was putting the DoorDash deliverer through? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. I, I just I remember uh, just being uh, dumbfounded. Uh, I, I had to like process uh, everything about that movie right there on the spot on yeah. the podcast. Yeah. Uh, it just, just why, why, why yeah. did that movie exist? Well, look, if, if but, anything, we'll say that it was probably <laughs> a very therapeutic experiment, if you will. But uh, as much fun as that trip down memory lane was, again, we have the midpoint of season three to talk about tonight. Kiss by Fire, our twenty fifth episode, season three, episode five, the second episode directed by Alex Gray. This is the third of eleven episodes that Brian Cogman wrote for the show, and it's tough because I think that. 
this season and then the next season, season four, when Brian Cogman writes the two back-to-back episodes. Uh, well, sorry, not the two back-to-back episodes, but the two episodes, Oathkeeper, where Jamie gives Brienne the sword at the end and sends her on the mission to find Sansa, and then Tyrion's trial episode, The Laws of Gods and Men. I think that these three episodes, uh, the, those two episodes, I should say, this episode and The Laws of Gods and Men next uh, next season are probably two of the best episodes that he's written for the show and two of the best episodes in general for the show. This episode is one of those ones where there's a lot that happens here. It's not exactly the most jointed together. Like, it doesn't flow as cohesively as the last two midpoint episodes of the last two seasons, uh, that being, you know, The Wolf and the Lion and um, and then uh, The Ghost of Hall last season. But I think this is... But the moments in here are just... They're so damn good. They're so damn good. Like, every single moment here just hits and it hits so much harder than it needs to you know yeah it's likely that at this point the characters are really spread out and the fact is like you're not going to have necessarily a cohesive um you know full story episode where everything kind of uh plays off of each other like they're in their different spots in westeros and we basically just have to uh get a little insight into you know the amazing things that happen to each of these uh characters Absolutely. So let's get into it. Let's start. First awesome moment of this episode. We open right up. Right yeah, in the middle it, of the action. Hey, last episode. It's time. Two, two men enter, one man leaves, one right? One man leaves. Well, the, the old Thunderdome, uh, you know, the phrase, old Thunderdome, right? Uh, most people would refer to it as a trial by combat. For me, this is a trial by fire, quite literally. The Hound has been found guilty of killing the Butcher's Boy. And so as a result, he's going to fight Beric Dondarrion. But there's a catch, of course. And that's that Beric Dondarrion, he's now a servant of the Lord of Light. And therefore, you know what that means, right? Means yeah, flaming fire swords, sword. Man. Oh, man. And I love how they were able to do that practically, too. Like, I, it's funny. I, I I remember watching this as a behind the scenes when they were filming season seven because they famously obviously bring the, the flaming sword back when they go on their quest north of the wall. Um, and just the way that they're able to film that practically, like, I mean, it sounds like such a chore to keep that sword alight like 24 7 because it's like the minute if you wave it in like the wrong direction or with too much force, it instantly goes out. So, like, I can just imagine them in between takes like constantly having to, like, oh, gotta reoil the sword, gotta light it on fire again. But, it's, but jokes aside, like, it's an amazing scene. It's an amazing fight. It's very close. It's very confined. It's very close quarters. But it's super intense. It's super engaging. It's super in the moment. And I really like how they translated this from the books, where in the books, again, this is another fight that seems like it's super close, seems like it's going to go one way. Barrick seems to be having the upper hand, you know, obviously very smartly using the Hound's fear of fire that was so well established last season against him. But ultimately, yeah. at the end... Well, it's also the crowd, right? The crowd is just, like, uh, going crazy, including yeah. Arya, which is like, kill him! Like, right. it's it's really... At a certain point, they're cheering him They're like, they're, they're yeah. like uh, what is it? They're like, what is it they're saying about the Hound? It's like, uh, murderer, murderer, murderer. They're like, yes, good is going to triumph, but at the end, the Hound still proves too wily. He brings a crushing blow down, snaps Beric's sword in half, and caves through half of his shoulder. And basically, so he collapses, he dies. Thoris immediately goes to his side, starts praying at the moment, right? And when it aired, you don't know what was going to happen. Yeah. And, and then this is when Arya, like, grabs a dagger and oh, jumps, great. you know, and oh, goes to it. kill him, but gets stopped. And then, um, you know, what does uh, Beric say? He, he basically well, says, like... Well, so the, uh, the, the, the Hound first says something really snappy, which I love, which is, looks like his god loves me more than him, you know? And, yeah, but then yeah. it's something about, like, go to hell, right? Well, Arya says... Uh, Arya says he yeah. says, burn in hell. And the next thing you know, you hear the words from Barrack saying, oh, he will, just not today, as Barrack has magically been brought back once to life, as this is the first instance in which we see the Lord of Light's true power, right? We got a hint of it last season with Melisandre and the Shadow Baby, but this is the true instance where, again, compared to all the other religions that we've that we've come to know, the Lord of Light 
if channeled properly through a red priest, has the ability to bring people back from the dead. The sucky thing is that aside, is that this only ends up becoming the payoff through which they're able to kind of cheat and bring Jon Snow back in season six, and there really isn't that much payoff to it after the fact. But at the time, this was a really cool reveal. It was really interesting. It was something new. It was something different that really hadn't been seen in fantasy because the only real example that we'd had of it before, at least from a mainstream sense, was Gandalf coming back to life in Lord of the Rings, and there's all sorts of problems about how that's explained and what that means and from a characterization standpoint. But at least at the time when this was introduced, this was something new. This was something that really hadn't been done before, at least not in like that sense, just in general. And it was really, really fascinating, especially considering that at first you're prepping yourself for what seems to be like a tragic death, although a messy one at that. And then completely after the fact, it's literally like, okay, and I love it too how Barrick once again shows that he's an honorable character by not doing the cheap and easy thing, which is like, oh, you killed me, but I came back to life. He's like, no, even though I'm back to life, you still killed me. I'll do the honorable thing. You won. You're free to go. You know, I just. Yeah, I love, but, I, but then like two episodes <laughs> later, he just sells Gandry. So, like, hey, Gandry. you know, so whatever. Well, well, it's like Thoros <laughs> later says, you know, it's like, hey, we're honorable, but to a point. We do need the gold in order to fund us, in order to fund it. And then I love how in the next scene, the hound is literally like, piss on your piece of paper. I want my goddamn gold. He's like, yeah, we're keeping your gold. Sorry, you're not getting You're not getting away with everything. He's like, you're not a bunch of thieves. He's like, yeah, we're outlaws. Of course we are. We, we steal. It's part of our thing. Yeah, and then they basically uh, put a sack over his head and let Clegane go, you know, yes. on his merry way. Yes, indeed. And, like, it's it's that's the primary bulk of the storyline, but there's two important scenes that followed up. One where Arya runs into Gendry, finds him mending Barak's armor. Arya is just so disillusioned at this point. It's like she oh, yeah. was told that these men were honorable. She thought that they were going to do the right thing, but should they let the hound go? They didn't let her. She didn't kind of get her revenge, and now Gendry's... Well, they have this died. nice moment uh, uh, talking about family, right? You know, Gendry thinks he might have found uh, you know family in uh, in this uh, group, but uh, Arya basically says, hey, no, they're, they're not worth anything. Um, you know, fa- like the two of us could be family, right. is basically what she says. And, you know, at this point... Uh, uh, Gendry doesn't really believe wholeheartedly in in the two of them, just, you know, right. going off on their own. Right. Uh, he thinks he's found a place, and as we know, you know, by watching this show, we know in an episode or two um, that's going to be problematic for yeah, him, to say the least. But I think the big takeaway from this scene that kind of is hammered home, at least for Arya, and why this I think this is really important as far as for this sect of her arc is that it kind of once again outlines that she still kind of really doesn't have this understanding where she thinks that everyone she meets is going to be friends with her, but she doesn't quite understand like the class struggle and different. She doesn't really understand Gendry's point of view. She just thinks, oh, she, in her mind, she's still the whole of the whole mindset of, oh, Lannister's bad, Starks are good. And she doesn't really see it because Gendry sees it as something completely different where it's like, yeah, the, you know, my maester sold me, you know, the, the Lannisters I had to worry about being dead every day. And what, I'm going to go serve your brother and just to get the same thing from a highborn? And he's like, yeah, at the very least, the brotherhood, yeah, they're shady. But at the very least, they all kind of have come from like the same place as him. So they, they have, the, again, this feeling of relatability for him that really Arya could never quite understand. And he's like, yeah, at the very least, Beric was chosen to lead, you know, unlike just inheriting it just because, you know, he had a certain family name, you know? So that's something that Arya really doesn't understand. And again, it, it sucks because even though her and Gendry have this really special bond that's formed over this past season of them kind of surviving on their own together, and ultimately they, they are still worlds apart as far as that goes. And Arya still is very inexperienced despite all that she's learned in her journey. The only other real... I think interesting scene is what comes after this, which is when she has that sit down with Thoros and Beric. And again, it's the first of a couple moments in this and this episode that for me personally, just really, really hit home as far as the emotions go. Because the other thing that I love about this episode is that 
Brian Cogman does something really interesting where this is after a couple of episodes that have only pretty much exclusively been written by Benioff and Weiss. And the thing I love about most of the Brian Cogman episodes, not all, I have problems with some of his later episodes, but the thing that I love about a majority of the Brian Cogman episodes is that whatever character he chooses to focus on in that episode, he really like kind of hammers home the point of like what that character stands for. Like John in the first episode that he wrote for season one, cripples, bastards and broken things, you know, with him. And then with the thing with Tyrion, with giving, um, with giving brand the, um, the harness, you know, the design for the harness. And then in season two with what is never, what is that may never die, really focusing on how efficient Tyrion is as a hand and like the beginning of Theon's, you know, downfall, just as a great joy, you know, once he begins the whole invasion of the, you know, once he decides to ally with his father and everything. And now we have that here again, where, this is the first of really every character that we get where Arya, again, she has this moment with Gendry where she begin, where she really discovers that they are worlds apart. And then she has this moment with Beric and Thoros. It starts out pretty humorous with exposition where it's like Beric is like, how many times have you brought me back now? And Beric's like six and they recount all the different times and ways that Beric has died over the course of like the last couple seasons since he originally left King's Landing. And then Arya has this really sweet, really sad moment after she, you know, breaks down with Thoros. She's like, okay, so I'm a hostage. You're selling me. And she's like, he's like, don't think of it like that. And she's like, but it is that. He's like, not so much. He's like, nah. And she's like, nah, it is. She's starting to wise up. And then she has this really tender moment when she asks, he's like, yeah, could you bring back a man without a head? And of course they know who she's talking about. And because, of course, they have a lot of admiration and respect for Ned when he was alive. And Barrett tells her, he's like, even if, I, if Thoros is like, I don't think that that's how that works, you know? At the very, like, because I think that, I think the biggest thing that's established here is that despite the fact that the Lord of Light does have the ability to bring people back from the dead, there are a couple caveats to it. It has to be done within at least a couple of hours of them dying, and the damage to the physical body can't be so severe that it would cause some form of impertinence. Like, the, the worst that Barrack has done is, again, his shoulder got caved in half, but for the most part, it's just, like, cuts, stabs, and really, and one hanging— Ned fully got his head severed off, so, like, that's not going to work just in general. And it leads to this really sweet moment where it's like, um, you know, are, uh, where they're like, you know, Ned is Ned is resting now. He's in a better place. He doesn't have to deal with all this chaos. And, you know, I wouldn't wish my life upon that. And Arya's kind of like, I would. Because, like, it's these brief little moments that once again reinforce, like, you know, that Arya truly does feel her lineage with the North. And it's really one of the few things that's keeping her going. And that, you know, she misses her dad. And it kind of yeah, sucks. Uh, well, I think it's like two seasons later after Ned gets executed and she's still traumatized, still hasn't really processed everything. And this is one of those moments where she throws it out there like, hey, could he, he possibly get brought back and uh them you know letting her down softly and, and saying hey uh that's that's not how this works like I, I think this is the moment where she could start really processing things and moving on and you know starting to look forward to how life is going to be she's relatively in a stable spot compared to what she's been dealing with the last two seasons so i think it's one of those things where uh, you know, now what's life after King's Landing? Right. What's life after her father died? Uh, I think she's going to start, you know, uh, having a different outlook on things other than just trying to escape the Lannisters. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. And so the um, what's called cutting to the next big character moment that Brian Cogman writes in this episode. Uh, I'm going to cut briefly to North of the Wall before we get back to the Riverlands because this is really the only one sequence we get. Uh, We're talking about the steamy scene? steamy scene. Oh, man. And it just gets (laughs) steamier and steamier every time I watch it because so we had Sam and kind of the breaking down of the Night's Watch in the last episode and now we cut back to John with the Wildlings. It starts off with, uh, you know, a really interesting scene where John is with the, you know, the little band led by Tormund that's heading to climb over the wall, right? They're going to continue their plan to attack the wall from the south. 
Yeah, it's it's like how many men do you have? And yeah, like, John's like a thousand. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he'd be interrogated so. by Corman and Orel, and like John's in a, John's in such a tricky position here, where John is constantly trying to battle it out between like making sure that the wildlings continue to think that he's got some sense of loyalty, even though he knows that they don't fully trust him, and rightfully so, while also trying to maintain loyalty to the Night's Watch and his vows are continuing to be tested because it's obvious that RL doesn't trust him both for the fact that he wants Egret and, but she's very clearly into John and the fact that he doesn't trust John Torman has more of a respect for John really because of his reasoning, why he gave Mance RL obviously wasn't in that tent, but like RL is kind of testing him and poking him and prodding him and trying to provoke him and see where he is. And John almost fall for it where he's like, you know, where he drops the wood. He's like, Oh, what's going to happen if I kill you? And what's going to happen to that Eagle? If that happens, oh, hey, does it drop has, dead immediately or right, does Corman it has to uh, kind of come you know. and break it up? Egret sticks up for him. And afterwards, John's like, I don't need you to stick up for me. And Egret's like, oh, really? Who was it that stood up for you in front of Mance and in front of the Lord of Bones? Looks like you owe me something. She steals a sword. He chases her into the cave. And of course, it results in them. Well, we all know the scene. Well, well yeah, it's, listen, it's it's it's. Uh, yeah, it, you know nothing, Jon Snow. It's definitely uh, the line, and I, I think that line basically cements uh, the two of them as like a fan favorite couple. Yes. And we're engaged in that storyline, you know. From uh, if you weren't engaged before this moment, you're definitely you're engaged, and engaged you want to see how they basically make it out of the tough spot. Like, how, you know, the Wildlings and the Night's Watch are at each other's throat, and like the two of them are. It's basically a West Side Story, but north of the Wall. You know they they're they're on opposite sides. West Side you know. Story, West Side Story. Well, oh, Romeo and Juliet, whatever whatever the love story you want to bring. I mean, but uh, all, I mean, the one's a remake of another, so yeah. So basically, like that's what we're getting. You know, it's it's a tried and true formula. Like I think we're all on board, and the fact is, oh, like, yeah. uh, you know, I, I think you know how that storyline plays out, and we'll eventually get there. Is uh, you know, I, I think it's something that's uh, it's, it's handled really well, and the fact is, you know, I, I can't say that I didn't expect it to end the way it does, but, uh, you know, it's one of those things where, um, you know, it, it's right now we can enjoy it. We can enjoy the banter back and forth between, uh, the two of them, you know, basically the, the pillow talk, so to speak, they're, they're just, yeah. uh, really also, uh, teasing each about, other and you everything. So it's, humorous, it's, you want to talk about more humorous dialogue when Egret starts recounting all the boys that she slept with after John admits that, you know, he essentially lost his virginity to her and he's like, okay, I, I, I got the picture. I just, I mean, that was just hilarious. Yeah, like, it's, it's, one-liners are just flying at a, in at a mile a minute. And like, what I'll say about this scene is that I slight problems with just how this scene is characterized because once again, it becomes obvious that this is another example where this is a kind of a fictionalized, like, dream girl that's written by a guy who very clearly did not have a lot of female interaction just in general in his younger life because let's face it that's the case with most authors but what I like about what it does is that it really kind of irons home John's struggle here which is that again he he is trying so hard so so hard to maintain his vows to the Night's Watch to remember Corrin's words to you know to you know keep going undercover with the wildlings but like he's starting to as he's starting to learn more about them he's starting to realize that they're really not what the Night's Watch has brought him up to what, what, not not what the Night's Watch has made him think about them. And also, like, he's, he's falling for this girl, you know? And it's understandable yeah, but why. He, he, we're also, you know, as an audience being, um, you know, shown that the Night's Watch, you know, even though they're tough vows and, you know, you're not supposed to, you know, uh, lie with women or, or marry or have children or whatever. It's like, yeah, those, those are the rules. But, you know, ultimately, Jon Snow uh, basically just broke those rules this episode, uh, yeah. as we'll see, uh, you know, with Sam later on, like he, he, he 
basically breaks the the vows, and uh, it turns out that the the vows are are not very necessarily flexible. very yeah, flexible. Because because like I said, it, it's the whole thing. And Mister Amon says again, it's like if we beheaded every brother that went off to Molestown to Molestown, with the wall would be run by headless men or something like yeah, that. Yeah, and then Sam also like uh, he's like, well, look at the words they have. They don't exactly outlaw this. They don't this. say anything, you know. So basically, relations. It, it, they only say no wives or children. There were no wives or children involved here. So yeah, exactly. No so and so it's very up, yeah. No, I'm very, just very I'm just loose. yeah. I'm just saying it's very interesting that we're sort of you know slowly being introduced to what it is to really be part of the Night's Watch, uh, and I think that's part of John's story where it's like it's kind of this scary thing. You know, if you're a robber, a criminal, you know, uh, whatever you you know ashamed your family, whatever it happens to be, you get sent up to this like hard place, uh, you know. But ultimately, it's really not you know as cruel as you would expect it to be more freeing in a way is the strange thing and then i just wanted to bring up jay's comment and then they got married in real life yes indeed they did because harrington and rose leslie are happily married with a kid so hey what do you know some hollywood romance stories do happen indeed again it's a brief scene it's a very memorable scene again it's been a very talked about very meme scene it's obviously where the title of the episode comes from when Igor talks about again the idea of redheads in this universe are referred to as kissed by fire which i think is a really interesting terminology and phrase that uh i hope to eventually use in real life at some point but (laughs) moving on so back to the riverlands we then have again it happened it happened earlier in the episode that i thought because i for the longest time i thought that this, this scene happened at the end of the episode, but it actually, there's a couple sequences that happen after it, which is probably for me, like, we obviously talked about how Jamie, we talked at nauseam about how Jamie and Brienne probably have the best arc this entire season, but this is the moment that solidifies it, where they arrive at Harren Hall, finally, they're greeted by Bruce Bolton, Locke's trying to make a bunch of stupid jokes, Bruce Bolton immediately disregards him as like, get them to the quarters, make sure they're taken care of. He sends, um, what's it called? He, he he has this really interesting moment where he tries to bait Jamie and trick him at first, where he's like, where Jamie asks him at King's Landing, Bruce is like, how do I put this? Stannis marched on the Blackwater, and he does the dramatic pause, too. Like, he totally is Yeah, well, he, he's definitely, definitely making him think that Stannis basically won uh, the Battle of Blackwater. Uh, I think also the other thing that Locke does is uh, basically uh, Bolton sees the hand around his, uh, you know, Jamie's neck and he says, oh, you've lost the hand. And Locke is like, no, he has it right here. And, uh, you know, basically Bolton um, speaks down to Locke and almost like he's uh, frustrated and uh, wish that this wasn't the case, like, you know, that Locke didn't uh, take his hand. Uh, but, you know, it, it makes me think that that's just for show, right? You know, right. Bolton basically has to appear to Jamie and Brienne to a certain degree as someone that they can negotiate with. And so uh, looking at Locke and and saying, hey, you know, uh, don't say another word, talking down to him, uh, almost like chastising him. I I think it's one of those things where Bolton is, you know, playing some mind games here, uh, not only with the Blackwater stuff, but also with the... uh, the interaction with the hand and uh, you know Locke in in general. So right. it, Bolton has you know some some real plans behind those yeah, eyes. It's, and, it's the beginning of the first of couple of hints that are saying that Bolton again. If it wasn't already clear from last season, again we we still don't know who Ramsey is. There's no Theon or Ramsey scenes in this episode, thank God. But this is the be again the continuing 
of the fact that Bolton has got some plans that maybe don't involve Rob in the future, just from the way that he's treating Jamie. And then later, obviously, with how he decides to handle Brienne by thinking that she could be a problem. But it, it, this is the kind of the beginning of that. But again, it leads to so Jamie's obviously sent to see Kyburn. Famously, obviously, you know, the maester who's been stripped of his chain. And we obviously begin to hear some of, you know, some of the inklings of that there about that. And, you know, Kyburn obviously wants to take the whole arm off in order to prevent any more infection. Jamie's like, if you take your my the rest of my arm off, I will kill you. He's like, you're just going to. He's like, all right, best I could do. I can cut off the infected flesh. He's like, all right, that'll do. And he's like, oh, yeah. he what does he say? He's, he says, basically, I can uh, I could also probably uh, uh, get rid of the corruption by uh, soaking in boiled wine or something like right. that. It, it's there's a lot of pain involved. Yes. And, you know, like you said, the milk of the process. poppy. It's a painful and, process and it looks painful just from the yeah. way that like Nikolai Kostrowaldow carries it. Like he's just he's like, I don't want milk of the poppy. He's like, it'll be very painful. And he's like, that I'll scream. He's like, it'll be painful. He's like, I'll scream that he's like very painful. He's like, I'll scream. <laughs> loudly and it shows but yeah and it's it's a really good sound transition out of that sequence and, yes. and, and into the next part of the episode right. for but sure like it's, the, it, the way that it wraps up though like this is for me personally i don't know if you feel the same the moment where jamie comes in with brienne and they have that moment in the bathhouse top five moments of the entire show for me like this is just from a writing standpoint a monologue standpoint this is obviously an actor's dream this freaking rules. I had every single word of this monologue, like when I read it in the book originally, when I watched it in the show for the first time. It's one of my favorite, my most rewatched scenes where it starts off. Brienne thinks that Jamie's just trying to encroach on her. She doesn't want to be around him. He thinks that she's insulting her more. He says, no, I want to make peace. We, I don't want to keep fighting. You know, And he he opens himself up to her. He he gets real emotional with her. He finally makes her, him, her see a side that... He is really probably not told anyone ever, probably not even Tywin or Tyrion. For that yeah, matter, well, it's, it's the whole story. Yeah, it's the whole story of the Mad King and right. the reason why he actually uh, why went he ahead killed and killed him. Um, and so it happened to be with the whole, you know, uh, wildfire, wildfire and, and uh, willing to kill his citizens, basically. Right. Uh, Despite Robert Baratheon. Yeah, and there's this great moment in the monologue where it's like, you know, as I put the blade in his back, he was just uh, he didn't really expect burn them all. Yeah, he didn't think he was he didn't think he was going to die. He just kept saying, "Burn them all, burn them all, burn them all." Um, You know, so it's it's one of those things where uh, this particular scene with Jamie Lannister it it opens him up to redemption uh, for everything that we've seen in the first uh, two and a half seasons. You know, it's one of those things that makes him human. It puts us on his side now that he's at a low moment uh you know he he was someone that you know did this honorable thing that we you know they're revealing to us that this was almost honorable uh but the whole entire world sees it as uh you know he's the king slayer right. uh, he betrayed his king he, he did th- the cruelest thing possible um but you know the current game of thrones what's happening now wouldn't be plausible uh there would just be a ton of dead citizens um if it wasn't for him right. uh so it, it's one of those things where it kind of makes him a lot uh, you know hugely complex because we've seen the worst side of him uh and now we're starting to get to actually see the other side uh that's going to really uh lead us into the rest of the series like jamie uh, becomes uh, a little more humble uh, from this point going forward. Absolutely. And like the the way that he kind of brings in each new element of the story that he's telling, where he first starts it off by asking her if she knows what wildfire is. Then he starts by introducing like kind of, you know, the beginning of what was going to happen on the day. He describes the action. I also think it's very interesting too, where he's like, yeah, he, he listened to the pyromaster 
You know, again, I begged him. To, I begged him to surrender. Varys begged him to surrender. But for some reason, he only listened to Grand Maester Pycelle, who we know is only loyal to one person, and that is Tywin Lannister, who, of course, urged Ares, open the gates to Tywin Lannister. He'll be on your side. He'll help you, you know, knowing full. And Jamie, of course, knew the truth as far as that goes. Again, Tywin, there's a reason why Tywin got to King's Landing first before Robert did. He wanted to cover his tracks. He wanted to make sure that he seemed like he was on the winning side because famously, the whole thing is that for the longest time, very similar to Walder Frey, Tywin sat out a majority of the rebellion because he wanted to see how it was going to go because he didn't want to choose. He had famously retired as Ares' hand after the whole, and this is kept out of the show, but after the whole decision that Ares made to make Jamie a Kingsguard member just to spite Tywin, and that famously caused Tywin to retire as his hand in order to rob Tywin of his golden boy because he thought that Tywin had too much power. And so Tywin famously, he wasn't going to make his stance known, but he obviously had to wait until... Um, you know, you know the the position was clear, obviously, on both sides. And famously, obviously, it's known that the Lannisters are the one that sacked the city and ended up murdering the Targaryen babes, which, you know, is what's going to bring in the Oberyn Martell and the Martells into the fray next season. But the thing that I just love about the way he phrases it is the way that Jaime kind of, how he's able to categorize the madness of Eris Targaryen by saying it's like he was willing to kill himself and his citizens. And because he was so crazy, he thought, that he would, he wanted to burn with the rest. He had no intention of escaping because he thought that if he died and was consumed by the wildfire, he would rise again as a great red dragon. He's like, I cut his throat just to make sure that that didn't happen. And then he says, he's like, if he tells Brienne straight up, he's like, yeah, if you had to choose between your, if your precious Renly ordered you to murder your father and then stand aside and watch while the entire, while every innocent citizen of the entire city went up in flames, would you do it? Again, a very obvious foreshadowing as to what's going to come later in the final season. But it's a really harsh choice because Brienne, of course, now all of a sudden realizes the terrible, this terrible burden that Jamie has been carrying all these years with, you know, bearing the title Kingslayer, Oathbreaker, all of these different things that, again, people, all these titles that people have harped on them because they never understood the real trauma. And she even asked him, "Is like, if that was the case, why did you tell Ned? And he's like, Ned? Ned would, you know, with, with his, with Ned was so, and Jamie even says, it, like, Ned is so far removed from everything. You know, he had no idea what he was in for. The only thing that brought him in was his loyalty to his sister and to Robert as his friend. He could have cared less otherwise. He's like, you think, and, and I'm, you think I'm going to explain myself to Ned Stark, who judged me the minute that he saw me standing over the king who only ever lived by his odes, you know? And he even says, he's like, by what right does the wolf judge the lion? You know, still bringing in, still hiding behind that veneer of, you know, that the Lannisters are better than everyone else before he collapses. And Brienne catches him, obviously, and, you know, says that the Kingslayer needs help. And it, it, it's all topped off with the cherry on top when he says, you know, Jamie, my name is Jamie. It's just, what... One of the one of the best written scenes, quite possibly in the history of television. It's so impactful. It it, it categorizes who Jamie is to a T, and it really does set him up for the rest of the show. As far as like this is the true transformation moment where he becomes a lot more humble. You understand him in a way that you really never did before. You understand kind of the struggle, the burden that he deals with, of constantly having to be you know the golden boy, the fighter, the survivor, where his loyalties truly lie. And it just it, it's brilliant. It's one of those moments where it's like, yeah, I truly do have no words because it's so so well done. You know. Yeah, no, exactly. I think, um, you know, watching it for like the third time here, the only thing I can think of is, uh, you know, hopefully, uh, you know, after he passes out, they, they wipe down his face because yeah, there's right? a, a lot of dirt. But no, I, I, I agree with you. Uh, pretty much 
this is a well-written scene. It is probably up there as one of the best monologues in this uh, series. Uh, and, you know, everything about it just really sets you up for uh, what's coming. You know, like, uh, obviously, in this season, we still have the bear pit and we have yes. what Jamie does to save Brienne. You know, there's there's just so many moments like, you know, everything that we've seen before this, like, basically, uh, you know, putting a spear through the back of, uh, you know, Ned's leg, or at least his, you know, right. uh, one of his men did, uh, basically. And then he you know, punches that man because he wanted the kill. Exactly. So, it, it, well, he also thought he was going to, he could have lost the Ned. So true, he, true. he wanted to see who was the, the better man was. Uh, never really got to see that. But, uh, you know, he, he put uh, Ned and the Starks through a lot of stuff, you know, pushing Bran out the window. Um, you know, all this stuff uh, is, is really attributed to Jamie. Um, you know, we see some of the terrible things he's done. Uh, but in this scene, it's just the reversal of, you know, hey, may, maybe, you know, he was wronged, uh, you know, for what he did, you know, killing uh, uh, the previous king. And, you know, it, it's maybe that burden has led him to make some awful choices. Uh, but, you know, deep down, maybe this guy actually has a conscience and he can actually do good things. Uh, maybe he is not the, you know, uh, sort the of the monster that we all think. Yeah. yeah. It, maybe there's a little gray area. Maybe it's not black and white. Like, uh, the show really, uh, established in the first two seasons. Absolutely. 100%. And there's one more storyline that you have to cover in the Riverlands. Oh man. Oh man. River run Rob. I mean, this is look, we all know that this season has slowly been building to the fact that Rob is ultimately going to fail. But this is the moment where it's like, oh, just yeah, what? well, could not, <laughs> everything, everything that happens here that goes wrong and everything happens first. The car. Well, first of all, uh, yeah, Karstark kills uh, Tomlin again. The Tomlin died on the show. Yeah, they break in and murder the two Lannister boys that they have as captives. That, that yes, yeah, they're they're captive. what are they like the cousins or something yeah, like, like that? Uh, like, like Tywin Lannisters. What is it? His bro- his uncles brothers great grandsons or something like that and yeah, yeah. they're, they're just out of, yeah lannisters that are out of the way and right exactly it's, they're out of the way and it's and the problem is again the motive here is so bad where rickard Karstark is so hell-bent on revenge that he's willing to murder innocent boys just in order to avenge his sons and rob even says it it's like yeah they were boys you well, had, well, yeah you know, it was right. like how, how many people like five people right. to kill some boys five you know kill two, uh, not even like not even like boys that were in fighting shape like they weren't even properly trained they were like what 12 13 something like that like they weren't even they, they weren't even capable of defending themselves they were innocent no, 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 in no. everything but their name alone it was a, it's an absolute just complete mishandling mishap but again even though he is completely in the wrong Rickard Karstark again throws it right back in Rob's face he's again he's like I wanted my revenge he's like I, he's like these boys did not murder your sons he's like no but he's like and he's like look at them and he's like look at your mother she murdered them just as much as I he's like my mother did nothing with had nothing to do with this this was your doing and he's like and he's like, um, in war, you murder, your, you kill your enemies. You know, did your father not teach you that? And then, of course, he gets punched in the face by Brendan the Blackfish. And then, of course, he drops the infamous line where he's like, um, what's it called? He's going to give me a scolding before he sets his, before he sets me free, our king in the north. Or should I say, I feel like the more proper title for Rob now, let's be honest now, the king who lost the north, ultimately. And it yeah, sucks I, I, because... Well, then though- Rob basically decides to execute him. And- yeah. Uh, I think the Karstark's last words, you know, about haunting him and I want to haunt you. Uh, I I think that's one of those things where it's like, man, um, we really see 
that Rob did lose the North almost in yeah. this sequence because entirely uh, he, he has to find factor because in this moment he ultimately chooses once again very similar to Ned he yeah chose honor. his own honor <laughs> yeah he chose honor over making the right smart tactical choice and again it's another one of those things where again the reason why I don't necessarily enjoy the Red Wedding and the build to it is because unlike the build with Ned where he was still being introduced to the world and part of the interest and intrigue of that first season was seeing just how out of his depth Ned was as an honorable man in an unhonorable world Rob is once again in a situation where everybody and their mother is telling him that he is making the wrong decision they keep telling him they're like keep him alive keep him as a hostage you need the Car Stark man forget just like the deep loyalties that the Starks and the car stars have going back again their names are practically so similar but it's the fact that again he just he needs the troops he needs the troops and if he loses the car stars that's half his army right there but rob he goes ahead he does it and you can tell too he's angry he's angry that he did it in the moment because of how hard his fist is clenched because he's like damn and, and afterwards with the scene with talisman where he's like damn it sucks where even though i know i had to do this in the moment or at least i thought i had to it ultimately it cost me because yeah. yeah, I think I think you know in terms of the transparency to the red wedding, it's it definitely they knew where they were going. They were kind of uh, you know leading the breadcrumbs for the audience that you know to really not make it too much of a surprise. Like I think it's one of those things where it is still shocking, but it, it's pretty much telegraphed. Like you understand uh, that something bad's going to happen to Rob by the end of the season. Uh, I think that's that's pretty clear. Like maybe you thought they were going to lose the war or uh, have to retreat or something like that but you know at some point you're basically being set up for something bad to happen to rob yeah. uh it's pretty clear it's pretty transparent and you know I, I think it's one of those things where um you could just see so many places where rob could have acted differently and it leading to uh more success like i think the early victories you know um were definitely uh you know great like going down, getting Jamie, et cetera. Uh, but I think at some point they should have just uh, took Jamie, their their prisoner, uh, and gone back gone up home. north and just, just held him in the dungeons of Winterfell and, and yeah. uh, tried to basically uh, rule their territories. I understand that the whole idea of Arya's out there, Sansa's out there, like, um, yeah, you know, that's true. Like, your loved ones are out there and you, you definitely don't want to uh, leave them for dead, so to speak. But ultimately, in the middle of a war, like, you're not going to necessarily locate them or, um, you know, in this case, they think they're in King's Landing. So taking Jamie back north of the wall or north of the Riverlands. Uh, and basically trying to do a prisoner exchange at some point would have probably been uh, a smart bet. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. but who knows? You know, it's hindsight, right? Well, you know? look, and the, the um, whole thing too is that Rob even admits it. He's like, he knows. He's like, yeah, now that the car stars are gone, he's like, I have no chance. Again, like they're, they're, they're in King's Landing. I have no chance. Like, yeah, my options at that point, he's like literally are attack King's Landing, which he knows is pitiful low, or march back north. And he knows that his chances back north are still tough because, again, he doesn't know where Bran and Rickon are. And even if they do retake Winterfell, they're still ironborn all over the north. And also, he knows, he even yeah. says, it's like, yeah, our original quest, he's still hellbent on this quest. He still doesn't have a clue yeah. that so, the quest to avenge Ned is over, but he's still kind of on this. Yeah. Like, and Talisman tells him, like, you need something to motivate them. And he's like, all right, screw it. I'm going to go for Castle Rock. Again, in my mind, still a terrible decision because as we learn later on even Tywin <laughs> even Tywin yeah. there's no stake in Castle Rock they have no gold left they have no mines left so. I think that's the, I think that's the best part about the show is no, everyone wants to go for Castle Rock but, but even, when even it, the Lannisters don't care about Castle yeah, Rock yeah when, when it finally gets taken in, towards the end of the show it's like it meant nothing <laughs> absolutely <laughs> you know? nothing. Um, 
you know, so it's, it's very interesting how, you know, they lead us, the audience and, and the characters on that wild goose chase of Castle Rock for the whole series. But, yeah. um, you know, ultimately I think this is the moment where he has that bright idea where it's like, Oh, you know what? I should, I should, I should, the guys always screwed over to begin with. Yeah. I should actually marry Walter Frey's daughter and, uh, or get no, them as allies. Well, no, well, no, he's already yeah. married. He's already married. So no, he's going to offer. Oh no. Yeah. He, he's going to gonna offer, Walter, uh, no. Just uh, what you call the uh, Blackfish's uh, son? Yeah, um, no, he's got he's got well, well, Catelyn's brother, but yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh man, just bad it, decision it, after bad decision after bad decision, and this episode is just hammering home. But no, the Car Stark scene is really awesome. I love that scene. I no, I, I, I think it's great. I, I think it's it's really pl- it's basically like you know, Car Stark is uh you know uh, someone who's lived a long life he has uh, experience on the battlefield he has some sort of wisdom in the world and he's basically you know looking at rob and um you know he's telling him hard truths uh even though you know it's rob's going to act the way he does and, and execute him uh you know car stark is basically telling him you know that he's lost uh, his kingdom. Yeah. And, you know, he betrayed the North by, by acting the way he did. And, um, it's one of those things where those dominoes are going to start to uh, fall into place and we're going to see, uh, exactly what, uh, happens when the Starks, uh, seemingly lose power of their better men and, you know, the North in general. Yes, indeed. Absolutely. And this is, of course, the beginning of it. So we got three more storylines to cover, two brief ones, but the big one, obviously, again, King's Landing, the thing that we still have again. This is, again, with all kind of the slow plotting that's been happening in King's Landing, this is, again, where we start to see things really come to fruition. First, obviously, Cersei approaches Littlefinger, who's still packing. He's taking his sweet time getting ready to go to the area. She kind of t- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he probably had the boat commission and built, you know. Probably. Like, it, it, it certainly is what it feels like, definitely. But again, it's just playing off of Cersei again, once again, commissions him and is like, yeah, I kind of need your help. I need you to find out what the Tyrells are up to again. Cersei is desperate to prove herself useful to Tywin here, and she's once again trying to implicit threaten Littlefinger into doing her bidding a lot more implicitly than she did the last time. The last time she just had her guards threaten him. Now she's like, yeah, I know that you know, she knows that Littlefinger is good with Tywin so she doesn't have the same pull with him that she does before, and Littlefinger also knows, like, alright and if I, if I want to stay good with the Lannisters, I gotta keep Cersei happy just in general, and through a very, I think, really interesting kind of play of events, the way that we follow this sequence I love how he has his man, we're introduced to uh, Will Tudor's Polliver, who uh, is revealed to be Loris's new squire, who conveniently places him and how conveniently, again, seduces Loris by saying, oh yeah, I'm the guy that Littlefinger trusts to take care of all the unsatisfied oh, yeah. husbands who are closeted. <laughs> that he does spills his guts to him and of course he informs exactly. I, I think this is one of the most economical sequences uh, I've seen in the show because it's like you know Loris is fighting and training and uh, he meets him and then it cuts to the two of them in bed then it cuts to and you're like wow um, Loris moves that quickly yeah, but then it cuts to uh, basically Littlefinger interrogating the spy yeah. uh, and, and the story is just like you know quick vignettes of, of the whole entire storyline yeah. uh you know it, get, it gets us right to the point that you know loris is being played uh Littlefinger has you know uh his spies and you know basically is working f- full tilt with the lannisters trying yes. to make sure they have the advantage absolutely well again they rewarded him with the eerie 
as he's already the Lord of Harrenhal, and just in general with everything that he's done. So for right now, again, they they are still two playing to his advantage. It's interesting how last episode, right, we saw Varys making his play by trying to engineer the whole Sansa, get, get Sansa getting in with Tyrells, and now Littlefinger is directly undermining that, and it just shows that, again, still in this moment, Littlefinger is still top dog in that sense because once the Lannisters find out, and they find out quick, boy, do they. Again, following up a very humorous interaction between Tyrion and Olena, where, where Tyrion, again, tries to attempt to request that Olena basically pay for the wedding because they're kind of broke. And Olena, once again, after leading him in 18 different directions, basically drops, oh, all right, fine, we'll pay for the wedding, even though basically still kind of reinforcing it. It's like, yeah, we... You guys may still run the city, but you still need our support in order to do so. And she does it in yeah, a very exactly. humorous sequence. I, love I think it's like, it's half the the wedding, right? Half the cost or Something whatever Something like that, but yeah. Uh, but yeah. wants to cover the majority of it, if we're being honest. Yeah. Again, and, the, 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 the Lannister funds are practically non and just the royal funds are practically non-existent. I think the best part is Tyrion is so proud of himself that he goes into the chamber with, uh, you know, Tywin and, and Cersei. And Tywin and immediately he, disregards him. He's like, oh, finances, that's your business. That's your, uh, that, you know, that's yeah, your problem. Don't, don't worry about important it. Things to do. And he's like, well, I did find a way to pay for the royal wedding. You can at least give us that. Of course, it leads to, again, another brilliantly written scene. I feel like every, I feel like, so... So let's say that the last season with the scenes with Tywin and Arya were the scenes where they were like kind of ironing out like how to specifically like build up like how they were going to use Tywin in the show going forward. But this season is like really where they hit home because every single scene in the small council chamber that involves Tywin is just a gem. We're just like they, we're just Tywin informs him of the plot that Littlefinger's kind of, you know, engineered him. And he's like, yeah, the Ty, you know, we bring the Tyrells into the fold and this is how they repay us. And he's like, Tyrion doesn't really see the issue. He's like, okay, so Loras marries her. Who cares, you know? And he's like, so we're going to just hand the key to the North over to Loras. And Tyrion's like, key to the North? I Last I checked, Rob Stark was still alive. Again, continuing to drive home the hint that Rob is not making it past this season where Tyrion still thinks that Rob is <laughs> yeah. doing fine and dandy. And Tywin almost seems to have this like sixth sense that Rob is not going to be alive much longer. And he's like, the Karstarks have deserted him. Rob's days are numbered. That leaves, and since both, and since Theon killed Bran and Rickon, supposedly that leaves Sansa as the key to the North. We need to act quickly. And so, uh, what's it called? And he, so he's like, um, you know, we need to, and I believe that I found a suitable match. And Tyrion's like, oh, that's good. And then, of course, the clever jab from Cersei, and Tyrion realizes that Tywin is setting him and Sansa up to be married. Yeah, exactly. And, it, and it's, it's one of those things. Uh, Tyrion is pretty much protesting, like, hasn't, hasn't she been through enough? Through, been through enough. You and know, it's interesting, like, once again, showing that Tyrion is the only Lannister with even a shred of human decency, where it's like, okay, we're, and I know, Sh and Shay, rather unfairly so, gives him a lot of shit in the next couple of episodes about, oh, whether he actually likes Sansa or not. He's like, it's not like I have a choice just in general, you know? At least, yeah. it, but like, Tyrion is full on protesting this. Like, he's I, I think the best part is like, Tyrion, you know, sort of like, understands like, oh my God, this is wrong, yeah. uh, but there's it's nothing he could do about it. And then, Immediately, Tywin looks at Cersei and basically says, "Hey, uh, you're going to be marrying." Well, Loris. first, well, before we get there, <laughs> you know, right, for the most scene, part. because that scene is hilarious and amazing in and of itself. Because Cersei thinks that she's gotten one over on Tyrion, but then Tywin just flips it right around on her, and yeah, basically, exactly. it's really, really kind of fucked up. That's how he phrases that, where he's like, "Yeah, you need to marry again and breed." And she's like, "I'm not this some homegrown mare, you know." And he's like, "You're my daughter, ultimately." And I love the scene too, where Tywin is like, "You wanted a reward for your services. This is Sansa is a far and Winterfell are a far better yeah, reward yeah, yeah. than you could ever hope for." And he's like, "You need to be." And it's like, it's, besides, it's long past time the true wet. Tyrion kind of reminds him, "Was like, yeah, I was wet. Don't you remember?" And Tywin's like, "Only too well." Again, and uh, Tyrion, like I said, does not have a lot of moments to shine this season like he did the last season, but this is one of them where he that that line. 
line that deliver where he just delivers all his behemoth hatred that he has towards his father, like in that one scene. And it's just brilliantly delivered. And then once again, he flips it around on Cersei and tells him, yeah, you're going to marry Loras. Tyrion will secure the North. We'll still secure the Reach and maintain our alliance with the Tyrells. And once again, it builds into Tywin's fatal flaw that his children are nothing but commodities to him. They are not people. They are commodities. And it's shown in this scene because Cersei thinks that she's been doing all of this work to like kind of get in good with her dad and make sure that she's kind of like, you know, got the new golden child standard. But again, he only, you know, she has the misfortune of being a woman in a still very male dominated world. And again, that's all. He still only sees her as someone to breed children in order to continue the Lannister name ultimately. Oh, yeah. you know? And she, she's traumatized because, uh, her Absolutely. first reaction is like, don't make me do it again, yeah. you know? Please and, don't make me she, do this again. Yeah. And so it, it's one of those things where Tywin sees them as disappointments. Like you've been dishonoring the family name, which is all he cares about. Right. Is the name lasts longer than the people, uh, you know? And so um, it's, it's one of those things where it's a brilliant scene again, where Tywin is uh, just flexing his power, yep. even against his own children. And, you know, it's in terms of like keeping the Lannisters in charge of everything, uh, these moves make total sense. Uh, but ultimately, we see that Cersei, uh, Tyrion, you know, even um, basically the Tyrells, like Sansa, everybody, everybody's going to be miserable. Yep. Yeah, everybody's going to be miserable because of this. Uh, but ultimately, Tywin wants to get his way because the Lannisters uh, have to stay on top. Absolutely, yeah. Again, it's it's minimalism, but this this might be my favorite of the King's Landing stuff that happens this season. You know, ultimately, obviously, we have Tyrion and Sansa, sh you know, mock wedding, and then obviously, you know, the after effects of the red wedding. Like, but like I said, this is again, it's another brilliant scene, and it just it's it's so well done. Like I said, every single moment that really happens in this episode is just a banger just first and foremost so two last sequences that we have to cover within this episode ultimately again we check back in on dragonstone after you know not really spending that much time there since the first episode we're introduced to two new characters here we finally meet stannis baratheon's family who we did not see any of in the in the last season it's funny because i thought that for the longest time we'd seen Salise and shireen baratheon they were introduced to in season two but the truth is we're not introducing them until this episode this season first we're introduced to Salise, his wife who it's safe to say is not at all mentally there the way she's talking she's clearly another no, it, of like Fanatic. Listen, like the fact is, uh, when they they have a discussion and in the room are three um, jars with uh, yeah, yeah, exactly, stillborn children in there, and it's like Jesus. Christ. Yeah, but it, it, it's it's almost from a like a science fiction uh, story. Like like it, it's the the jars are like yellow liquid, and uh, there's uh, this bright light emulating from them that's yep. kind of uh, lighting half half the face of Shireen. Yep. Um, you know, and it's, it's very interesting. Like they're basically, the two of them are just talking about, um, you know, like, Hey, I, I didn't deliver you any, you know, sons, any heirs. Uh, but Melisandre did, you know, yeah. basically referring to the shadow baby. And I love too um, how it's, I was like, Stannis is trying to like come clean, right? Because he's feeling guilty for his sins, like a season and a half later, which I think is kind of weird and comes out of nowhere, considering that we've spent so little time with him within the first half of the season. So that's weird. And that's been even weirder by the fact that Salisa not only okay with it, but encourages it because she sees herself as not worthy because she's become such a fanatic. Like, look, Salisa Baratheon has always been like kind of not at, not all mentally there just in general if you see her track record especially if, if you, again if you look no further than the way that she treats her own daughter once Stannis says that he wants to see her you know because again it becomes immediately clear 
that she does not care about her daughter in the in that way. But and, but I find it interesting because even though obviously again the impetus just in Westeros and obviously for the longest time just in general throughout you know the Middle Ages was to have sons so that the sons could continue the family name because obviously daughters unfortunately could not just because of the elements of marriage. But Stannis it shows like has this very clear admiration for his daughter in a way that really not too many other people have. Obviously, I think it's really interesting that this follows up like you know showing Tywin have such real clear distaste for his daughter as a real human being, seeing her only as a commodity when it becomes very clear in the next scene when Stannis meets his daughter and it's revealed here that Shireen uh, obviously another thing about her is that she had grayscale, you know, and the whole thing about grayscale is the maester was successfully able to cure her as a baby because that's the only time that you're able to cure it but she still has obviously the scar on her face and the thing that's introduced here, like I, oh man, I love, Sh I love Shireen Baratheon. I love her. She's so innocent. She's so plucky. She's one of the few, like, just purely, like, still innocent, still good characters in this harsh, harsh world. So of course, you know what that means she's going to meet a brutal and vicious end after a certain point because Benny Offen Weiss are just <laughs> so scapegoated. Yeah. But uh, that, that's not for another couple seasons. But what this sequence is about is basically her asking Stannis, like, hey, you know, what happened to Davos? Where is he? <laughs> well, yeah, where's Davos? Where's he Davos promised, been? he promised he would bring me uh, a gift. Yeah. You know, and, and all this stuff, and it's like uh, Stannis can't even really look at her look at in her. the eye and give her like a straight answer. Right. He basically just uh, mumbles like, "He's, he's been in prison. He's a traitor, and I, that's it. You'll never see him again." And, and, like, and, and that's the thing it. that I love that's established here too is, first of all, that Shireen doesn't buy that for a second. She doesn't buy that for a second. She shows that even though again she's very she's very young, she's very innocent, and because of that, she's still she's one of the few characters that's been introduced into this world that still has a positive outlook on the world. And because of that, it allows her to go down and see Davos and well, get his own side. And even though, and, and Davos, and the thing that I love too is that Davos is still trying to maintain the facade, you know, because he still loves and supports Stannis so much to the point that he's even still willing to like try and do this facade for his daughter. But Shireen straight up tells yeah. him like, I don't care. You're my friend, and I'm going to help you. And oh, I just, I, yeah, love, I, I think, I, love I think the she's relationship that develops between these two. It's so sweet, it's so pure because yeah, I yeah. always see Shireen as the daughter that Davos never had, and Davos even comes to regard her almost as a second daughter as they continue to go throughout. And it's still, again, I still go back to their last interaction that they have together in season five when Stannis sends him away before and their last interaction that he has with Shireen, and then the reaction that he has once he finds out that she's died and how she's died. It's, oh, it's. Yeah, oh, I, I think I think it's one of those things where uh, this character is just really authentic. Yes. Um, you know, the fact is, you know, because of the dragon scale, because of where Dragonstone is, because of, you know, uh, Stannis himself is kind of a recluse. Uh, the fact is, she is isolated, uh, right. but she's a princess and she's well educated. Uh, she's, you know, well read to a certain degree. And the fact is, um, you know, it. it her innocence and her education uh, really make this character because like, yes, she doesn't know a hundred percent about the world. Uh, she's not going to basically be giving people uh, advice as if she was like a, a 70 year old scholar, but uh, what, ca what can she do? She can basically uh, investigate what, you know, happen to Davos, go into the dungeon when the guard is sleeping. Uh, you know, she knows the movements of the guards in the castle and uh, essentially recognizes that Davos doesn't know how to read. And it's like, well, you know what? I know how to read. She's like, I'm so gonna I'm going to teach you. And so it's it's she one does. of those things and where... And also a really crucially important sequence because even though Davos literally spends the majority of his arc throughout the rest of this ep throughout the rest of the show, you know, Learn, you know, learning how to read from Shireen and teaching himself how to read. It ultimately proves vital when, obviously, when he frees Gendry and Stannis is about to execute him again, but 
he's able to read the letter from Maester Aemon that tells them about the Night's Watch that eventually, you know, dictates Stannis' choice to take the fight north, you know? So, again, very yeah. important seeds that are still being laid here. Yeah, and no, and I think, uh, you know, basically this relationship between uh, the two of them, uh, you know, it, it really, uh, you know, helps elevate Davos. I think Davos is... is you know, by far one of the best characters of the entire series. And, Absolutely. um, you know, it, it, it comes through, you know, right here, right now, this interaction, um, you know, with Stannis's daughter, it, basically the two of them, uh, having this bond, it, it, you know, obviously he's stuck in prison for a little bit, but, uh, you know, so it gives screen time to Davos before, you know, he gets released and, uh, back in Stannis's good grace. Uh, but it, it, like you said, it, it does plant the seed uh, for his newfound ability to read uh, to really play a part in you know later storylines. Yeah, absolutely, and it's 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 one of those things where again, just like the fact that like she that there could be a character that's still this innocent in the show, but still has such good intentions. It, I don't know. It just creates a kind of like that warm, fuzzy feeling that Game of Thrones doesn't give you too often, but it makes it so satisfying and it just makes it that much more tragic and heartbreaking just ultimately where it goes. But again, it, it, it's ultimately crucially important just as the trajectory of the show. We got one more storyline to cover. It's brief. We briefly check in with Daenerys across the Narrow Sea in the immediate aftermath of the Astapor victory where her and the Unsullied are marching to the next Slaver City. You got a really interesting back and forth that's happening between Jorah and Barristan where they're, you know, they're talking, they're telling war stories. Jorah's talking about, you know, the, you know, the breach of Pike and how he fought there. Now, that was a very important moment for him because that's where he was knighted. Ultimately, he talks about Thoros going through the, going, being the first one through the gate with the flaming sword. And then obviously he talks with Barristan. He's kind of probing Barristan to see how much he knew from when he served with Robert Baratheon back in season one when Jorah was secretly spying on them. He wants to see how much Barristan knows, you know, trying to cover his tracks. Barristan, it's really interesting because, again, this is another vital change for the books because in the books, when Barristan joins Daenerys, he's undercover and keeping his identity a secret because in the books, Barristan did serve on Robert's small council, so he did know that Jorah was a traitor. And when his identity is revealed in the books, once he learns who Daenerys is, he tells her, obviously, and exposes Jorah's treachery. But in the show... Barrison never served in the small council. Barrison never had any knowledge of what's going on. He even says that he had a distaste for politics. He didn't has no knowledge of Jorah's treachery, and Jorah's just trying to make sure and cover his tracks there. But Barrison's also saying, you know, Barrison's also kind of trying to flex a little bit as far as like trying to show his authority. And Jorah's telling him, he's like, look, you're just another exile just like the rest of us, and I only take my orders from Daenerys. You've been with her a lot less than I have. You know, kind of it's really sucks kind of that we had so little sequences to me between Jorah and Barristan because we only have one more season with the two of them serving her before Jorah is revealed as a traitor and ousted, and then Barristan dies shortly into season five. Because it's really interesting kind of to see like the different the different sensibilities that they bring where Jorah is an exile, right? He was from the North, but he kind of sees Daenerys almost as a kindred daughter and like an emotional connection in a way that he hasn't really had in a long time versus Barristan served with her, served with her family, right? So he kind of has a knowledge and understanding of the Targaryens that not even Jorah has. So it's really interesting to see their back and forth. And then obviously we have the sequence where she, where we're introduced to Grey Worm for the first time and Grey Worm and she announces, uh, um, you know, brings up the officers and says, okay, you're free men. You need a commander to command you. And they bring up Grey Worm. And she's like, Daenerys is kind of disgusted by like, you know, these demeaning names that they've gotten that are essentially their slave names. But Grey Worm takes the option to keep his name because he's like, yeah, I'm gifted with this name. My, my real name was cursed because that was the name that from when I was taken as a slave, but Grey Worm is the name I had when Daenerys set me free, you know? And I think that's, a, again, it's another, it's a really important moment. It's so well written. It's so, the emphasis, the point is driven right home as far as, as far as what it's trying to accomplish. And again, just, oh man, just 
There, there's not a single bad moment in this entire episode for me. Like, you don't get any wasted storylines. You don't get more excess torture of Theon. You don't get more just Bran wandering around <laughs> in Dreamland. You don't. Hey, don't get, worry about it. Uh, Theon's coming. Theon's coming. Exactly. <laughs> oh, we know. But like again, just it's another example of just that this is probably one of the best well-written episodes of the season even if not at all of the storylines necessarily cohesively flow the character moments are so great the awesome moments are so great even the moments that feel like they're obvious and being driven home they're like they're they're done in a way that feel like they're impactful like the car stark the the loss of the car starks really does truly feel like a loss for rob like kind of the the jamie being at his lowest and his most rock bottom john really finding himself at this real crossroads aria finding herself at this real crossroads you know the the king's landing storyline coming to fruition with the plot and Tyrion really once again thinking that thinking that he can go no lower and then consistently being proven wrong just like all the character moments are so well written they're so well thought out there's just an understanding that happens with all these characters where they're at in this at this point in the journey that i feel like is not really i think done as well in any other point in the show at least not past season four but i don't know what do you think as far as that goes uh you know listen i i think this episode is sort of like uh, since it's right in the middle of the season, it is kind of a gem, you know, and, and we're about to hit the area where it's the quiet before the storm, right? It's going to start building up to the end of the, uh, uh, you know, the, the season here. Uh, so I think it's one of those things where, like, comparatively to, um, you know, I, I don't know. I, I just, I really enjoy uh, getting these intense character moments and being able to sort of, you know, pause the main storylines like, yeah, we can kind of see the the pieces be put into play. Right. Uh, but we're really just going deep into the characterization. Um, and, you know, I, I don't quite remember, you know, how many other episodes uh, really are as character driven right. uh, as this one is. It, like, they, they kind of creep up on you and hit of. you. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I feel like the last one we got before this was A Man Without Honor, which had a lot of surprising character moments with it. And then, again, there's not too many that I remember from season four, because season four is another one of those seasons where the even seasons are all action driven, where there's so much happening at every minute of season four that is just constantly pushing the plot forward. I really think that the only major character moment the, the, the character driven episode really that happens in that season is the laws of gods and men you know the, the Tyrion trial episode but even that again i don't remember the the, the ancillary storylines in that episode so I, I will have to see that when i go back and rewatch but for me at least with how awesome and how character focused and character driven this episode is, this is my favorite episode so far on this rewatch i love this episode i loved it every single time i watched it previously like this even more so than blackwater i'm saying it, this is my absolute favorite episode so far of the 25 episodes that we've watched so far in the rewatch. So that was it. That was a recap of season three, episode five, entitled Kiss by Fire. For me, the best episode so far in our rewatches. An amazing episode. I heavily recommend going back and rewatching it if you haven't been rewatching the show just in general. And of course, you can keep up to date with more Talking Thrones episodes that we will release, continue to release every single Sunday for the foreseeable future. Pat, where can the good people find you on the interwebs? Hey, listen, right now, uh, you know, I'm here at Talking TV, just uh, Talking Thrones with uh, you, Dom. Uh, I also have an Instagram that uh, I threatened to post on, at uh, Patrick W. Huber. Uh, maybe one day. Hey, you know, it's uh, I got to I, I get up on it. But uh, uh, I, typically, I, I enjoy looking at everybody else's beautiful photos. But, uh, you know, maybe one day. I'll, the, I'll those iPhone 13 <laughs> cameras, man, they are next level. Oh, God. No, no, I don't have any iPhone 13. Yeah, but, uh, you know, hey, if, if people want to spend that money, then, you know, have it. If it makes you happy, then 
go for it. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, you can follow me Facebook and Instagram at Movie Nerd Reviews. But more importantly, follow us on the podcast Instagram and Facebook at Talking TV Podcast. Be sure to also click the subscribe button, click the like button, leave a comment below, click the bell next to the subscribe button. That way, you guys get notified every time we put up new content. As far as content goes, this week new episode where we cover Dune. Denny Villeneuve's 2021 adaptation of Frank Herbert's novel on tomorrow. And then this coming Thursday, the next episode of Succession, the recap of season three that Dustin and I are doing going forward on the channel. Also, be sure to, if you haven't already, to check out our Shocktober Halloween first time watch series, which we just concluded last week with the ranking series. That was a lot of fun. And if you oh, guys yeah. want to get the Did you guys review Halloween Kills? We did. And it was oh, Chris's man. it was Chris's number twelve and it was my number eleven. So that that should tell you all that we know about all that we know. How, how long how, how long did you talk about the staring out the window parts? Uh I talked about that in the review, not as much in the ranking, because again it was one of those moments <laughs> where I'm like, why why is this here? Why are we 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 we're past scenes like this why is or scenes like this still making it into these goddamn movies but i don't know like, I, don't know. I guess i'm gonna have to jump on youtube and, and check I, I out your so, thoughts yeah. the, the, and... look all i know is the less said about that movie the better it's already made my top 10 worst of the year just in general again you guys can <laughs> check all of that out and more by continuing to browse this channel continuing to support us that way we can guys can get you the people the kind of that it is that you deserve as always remember 12 seasons in a short film watch more fucking movies we'll see you guys next week